It's November 30th, 1948, and a warm, clear day in Oakland, California, where in a delivery room in the Oakland Medical Center, the first son of Rodney and June Dully was born. They named him Howard. Howard Dully led the life of an average child, something that continued after his mother died from cancer in 1954, when Howard was just five years old. He would get into arguments with his younger brother, raid the sweets cabinet in the kitchen, and, in general, be a normal child. His father eventually got remarried to a cold and demanding woman named Shirley Lucille Hardin, known to her friends as Lou. Howard Adeli was an average boy. He had a paper route. He was slowly saving up money to buy a new record player. There was nothing abnormal about the young Howard. But in him, his stepmother saw anything but an average child. She created an atmosphere of neglect and emotional abuse in the Dully household, eventually causing Howard to begin lashing out and misbehaving as he approached his 12th birthday. To his stepmother, he became a problem that needed correcting. Lou began shopping him around to medical professionals, looking for some kind of diagnosis that would allow the supposedly broken child to be easily fixed, to be made calm and complacent. Every doctor and psychiatrist they saw gave her the same answer. There was nothing wrong with Howard at all. He was a normal child. That wasn't the answer she wanted, though. And so it was that she took Howard to see a new doctor. He was a friendly older man with a small goatee, funny round glasses, and a sharp suit. He told Howard, then 11 years old, that they should go hiking together. He gave Lou the diagnosis she had been searching for, saying that Howard had been suffering from schizophrenia since he was four years old, a conclusion that a slew of other doctors had found no evidence to support. Howard's father met the doctor only once, and then, in 1960, agreed to submit his 12-year-old son for a 10-minute procedure that would forever change his life. After being sedated by electric shocks, Howard Dully woke up with swollen, bruised eyes and a splitting pain in his head, with no knowledge of what had just been done to his body. Howard Dully had been lobotomized. Thanks for tuning in this week. You're listening to Hidden History, and my name is Ellis Tucci. In this episode, I'm going to talk about one doctor, Walter Jackson Freeman Jr., his creation of what's called a transorbital lobotomy, his popularization of the procedure, and its non-consensual use as a punishment. Obviously, this is a pretty serious and weighty subject matter, and there are some things in this episode that might make you very uncomfortable. I'm going to be talking in reasonable amounts of detail about non-consensual surgery, mental and emotional abuse, and sexual assault. If any of these are things that are triggering to you or uncomfortable to hear about, I would not recommend listening to this episode. That being said, 
Obviously, I'm going to be handling these topics respectfully. And I think that this is part of our history that is absolutely something we should all know about. You're listening to Hidden History, and this is episode 96, The Good Dr. Freeman. Apologies for not doing an episode last week. I was uh, out of town for a few days, and it's pretty hard to be able to assemble an episode on the go, much less record one that actually sounds good. And so, for the sake of both my nerves and your ears, I took a week off. From now on, I'll try my best to let you know at the end of an episode if there won't be one the following week. As usual, Hidden History is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. All of the sources for this episode are in the description, and if you enjoy this episode or find it engaging or the subject important, I'd really appreciate it if you shared it with your friends and subscribed. It really goes a long way towards expanding the show's reach and getting this type of information to new people. And so with that, I'd really like to get into the subject at hand. Before I dive into discussion about Dr. Freeman, I'd like to give you a bit of background on the history of neurosurgery. Nothing really super long, but I do want to give you a sense of where Freeman's practices emerged from so that you don't leave this episode thinking of it as a condemnation of a single person. It is true that, to some extent, that is what this is. By the end of this episode, I do want to leave you with a distinct impression that Dr. Freeman is not a good person. But what I don't want to give you is the impression that he acted alone, and therefore shoulders all the blame here. The only reason that Dr. Freeman rose to the position he did and was able to create the suffering he did was because, at least in the beginning, the medical community backed him up. While Freeman was certainly the most prominent and active lobotomist in American history, his procedures only made up a small fraction of the total lobotomies conducted in the United States, which happened primarily between 1949 and 1952. Individual surgeons in hospitals across the country, whose names and exploits we don't remember, conducted the vast, vast majority of some 50,000 lobotomies over the course of 30 years. Now, to give you a sense of where the popularity of the lobotomy emerges from, we need to have a firm grasp on the state of mental health care in the beginning of the 20th century. Obviously, this is a time when treatment of neurological disorders is understood very poorly, because at this point, the inner workings of the brain are still very much mysteries. And so, around the turn of the century, with more and more patients filling up already overcrowded, miserable, prison-style asylums, there's this push to discover invasive and permanent forms of treatment for anything that could be wrong with the brain. This resulted in the creation of a number of what are called heroic measures, which is a procedure or course of treatment that carries a high risk of seriously and permanently hurting the patient or otherwise damaging their health. These treatments included deep sleep therapy, which involves putting patients into drug-induced comas for long stretches of time, a method that was, in the 50s and 60s, used in hospitals secretly funded by the CIA in order to experiment on unwitting civilians as a part of Operation MKUltra. There was also insulin shock therapy, which had doctors injecting patients with large amounts of insulin in order to bring them in and out of comas on a daily basis. And of course, 
This period is also when we see the invention of electroshock therapy, which I'm sure needs little explaining. In the 1930s, a Portuguese neurologist named Egas Moniz theorized that mental illness was stored in the frontal lobe, the part of the brain that controls language, expression, choice, and personality. In 1935, he tested this hypothesis by surgically destroying the frontal lobe of 10 patients with an alcohol injection. For another 10 patients, he developed a somewhat more sophisticated method, drilling two tiny holes in their skulls and using a special tool called a leucotome, which is essentially a wire loop attached to a retractable needle to remove small pieces of the frontal lobe. By his own standards, the surgeries were successful, even though they had devastating effects on the minds of his patients. The benefits, he said, outweighed the costs. He was eventually awarded a Nobel Prize in 1949 for his work. What was then referred to as a leucotomy caught the attention of Walter Freeman Jr., a Yale-educated graduate of University of Pennsylvania Medical School who came from a family of prominent and famous doctors. Freeman was the new head of the neurology department at George Washington University and hungered for personal glory. He had long aspired to step out of the shadow of his grandfather, William Keene Jr., who was the first brain surgeon in America. He saw the leucotomy as that chance. Although Freeman had no formal surgical training, he redesigned the leucotomy, creating a more brutal and gruesome process that he called the lobotomy. Instead of taking small pieces of the frontal lobe, Freeman's lobotomy entirely severed its connection to the rest of the brain, eliminating all the abilities and functions it did for the patient. After practicing for a number of weeks on cadavers, Freeman conducted his first lobotomy and the first one in the United States on a 63-year-old housewife from Kansas named Alice Hood Hammett. And that is very important. It's significant that the first victim of lobotomy is a housewife. The majority of people who were subjected to lobotomization were women. In 1951, 60% of all lobotomies, then current and historical, were done on women, even though during that same period, men made up a higher proportion of patients in state hospitals and asylums. As a matter of fact, out of Dr. Freeman's first 20 patients, 17 were women. And this isn't some coincidence. It's the direct result of the power dynamics at play here. Up until, really, the 60s and 70s, husbands could have their wives committed to mental institutions for really any reason they wanted. If you were deviating from social norms, if you didn't obey your husband's every command, if you didn't immediately comply to his every sexual advance, then it was within his power to have you involuntarily committed to a mental institution and decide with the doctors what your course of treatment would be. Now, the main selling point of the lobotomy was that it made people calm and docile. So if you're in a marriage where you're the victim of something like battery or marital rape at the hands of your husband, not only do you not have a recourse, but he has the power to send you to a hospital where not only will you be stripped of your bodily autonomy, but your very personality, your ability to make decisions and say no. 
This institutionalization is something that Carol Warren writes about in her book Madwives, Schizophrenic Women in the 1950s, which covers a number of women who were committed to an asylum in California for things like disobeying their husbands. Now, none of the women in Warren's book undergo lobotomization, but we can extrapolate the connection from what we do know. We've established that there is a provable historical event that is husbands institutionalizing their wives with false diagnosis on the basis of disobedience, deviation, or unruliness. 60% of lobotomies, a procedure used to iron out disobedience, deviation, and unruliness, are performed on women. From 1935 to 1970, there are approximately 50,000 lobotomies performed in the United States, which means that there were approximately 30,000 lobotomies performed on women. Now, of course, there's no data on whether or not a woman was institutionalized because of a manipulative or abusive husband, but we can make some informed guesses here. There is similarly no data on domestic abuse in the 1950s. If you wonder why, then I'll point you as far as a September 25th, 1964 article in Time magazine linked in the description about a study that spoke to the positive effects of beating your wife. Now, the vast majority of lobotomies were performed between 1949 and 1952. And so if we have proof that domestic abuse and domestic violence in relationships was common and even encouraged in some forms in the mid-1960s, then I think we can safely make the assumption that in the more regressive 1950s, this was an issue that was, at the bare minimum, as prevalent as it was in 1964, if not more common. Carol Warren's book focuses on 17 women in the same asylum. Now, the Napa Valley Hospital, where these women were kept, reached the peak of its population in the late 1950s at around 5,000 patients. Now, assuming that those 17 were the only women institutionalized on false pretenses, that's a false imprisonment rate of approximately one out of every 294 patients. Now that's one data point, and so it would be to a degree irresponsible to reflect that as a concrete true rate of false institutionalization across the country. The data from the Napa Asylum could be an outlier. It could be significantly below or significantly above average. But that's the only data we have. And so if we operate on the assumption that that number accurately reflects some form of national average, and we look at the 1950 census of institutional population, we can see that the number of women in mental institutions is 613,628. That would mean that in the 1950s, there were approximately 1,840 women in the United States who were wrongly institutionalized by their husbands. Now, of course, the issue that we run into here is that there's no source that tells the story of a woman who was wrongly institutionalized by her husband and then lobotomized. Because, well, if that's something that you knowingly did, either as a husband or a doctor, you would never keep a record of it. And so right off the bat, you might hear that and see it as a glaring hole in my analysis that, to an extent, disproves the point that I'm trying to make. And that's fine if you believe that. Obviously, I'm not going to hold that against you, but I do think that looking at history that way does us a disservice. There is an overwhelming amount of knowledge about the past that we have no idea we don't know, 
And the only way we can uncover that relationship is by asking new questions and forming new topical and potentially causal relationships. I imagine this is a question that we will not get an answer to for a very long time. Primarily because the patient records of Dr. Freeman and people like him are sealed and closed to researchers, but also because history is so much more than what is written down. As we become further and further removed from this period in time, the people involved in these events, surgeons, patients, administrators, family, and friends, they just die. And with them may have gone some stories or final scraps of knowledge that they never told anyone and that they never wrote down. But I don't want to go off on a tangent here about the importance of preserving communal and familial history, which are incredibly important to be sure. What I want to do, and what I've done, is advance an argument that not only is the lobotomy a uniquely cruel and barbaric procedure, but it was used as a tool to oppress women on the basis of their gender. But if I ended the episode here, that would leave us with an incomplete analysis. And why is that? Well, it's because if we want to fully grasp the implications of this issue, then we need to offer an intersectional critique. Now, what does that mean? I imagine that if you've listened to all 96 episodes, that you're familiar with intersectionality. But I want this show to be accessible for everyone, and so I'm going to define that here. The previous segment of this episode was a critique formed around the basis of gender. The gender of these institutionalized people had a significant outcome on whether or not they received a lobotomy, and even how they came to be institutionalized. But gender is not the only factor that impacts the final outcome. And in the case of lobotomies, as well as almost everything else, we can also offer a critique based on race and based on class. That means that just like how you were more likely to be lobotomized as a woman, it's also more likely if you're black and if you're poor. Since all of these things play a role, they intersect at the same place. You're more likely to be a victim of lobotomy if you're a poor black woman than if you're a rich white man. So in terms of race, obviously I could talk very extensively about medical racism or the use of black people as unwilling test subjects in medical experiments, but I don't need to because Dr. Freeman openly admitted that he thought black people were more suited to be lobotomized than white people backing up that claim with the idea that black people's brains worked fundamentally differently and that black families were better suited to care for lobotomy patients. So that part's pretty straightforward. Now in terms of class, it's a little bit more complicated. And it means that we need to talk about one of the changes that Walter Freeman made to the lobotomy. In the 1940s, after doing lobotomies for about 10 years, he heard about an Italian doctor who was accessing the brain through the tear duct. Intrigued by this, Freeman decided to develop his own procedure. He called it the transorbital lobotomy, commonly known as an ice pick lobotomy. According to his son, the first transorbital lobotomy was conducted using an ice pick from the Freeman family kitchen. So how is it done? Well, and this might be a little much if you're squeamish, someone takes a very long, thin pick and pushes it through your tear duct and around your eye until it rests on your skull. 
At that point, the skull is only about a quarter inch thick, and so whoever is conducting the procedure takes a small hammer and hits the pick until it breaks through your skull, at which point they push it through the hole and use it to rip apart your frontal lobe. The invention of the transorbital lobotomy meant that lobotomization no longer required a trained surgeon, but could be done anywhere in about 10 minutes without putting the patient under. Yeah, some patients were awake. One described it as like having a broom handle shoved through his brain. The lobotomy, which was once a costly, delicate, and demanding procedure, was now fast and careless and cheap. One doctor described watching Freeman perform lobotomies like he was in an assembly line, with the next patient being wheeled in immediately after the current one had left. Freeman used this new speed surgery to develop a showmanship around scrambling unwilling people's brains. He would chew gum during procedures, operate through both eyes at the same time, he would refuse to wash his hands or wear gloves, referring to germs as that germ crap. As a result, for the 3,439 lobotomies he performed in his life, there was a 14% fatality rate. Side note, Walter Freeman was also responsible for the botched lobotomy of Rose Kennedy, JFK's sister, who remained in a vegetative state for the rest of her life. But anyway, how does the ice pick lobotomy lend itself to a class-based critique? Well, because it was extraordinarily cheap. Howard Dully's family paid just $200 for his lobotomy. And so as a result of that cheapness, it becomes something that's used when it shouldn't be. In the beginning of this episode, I talked about how lobotomies were created as a kind of medicine of last resort. Something to do if absolutely everything else hadn't worked. But with the invention of the transorbital lobotomy, the last resort became a lot more attractive. And so if you're a mental institution with dwindling funds and a lot of patients to manage, a large proportion of which are poor due to systemic social failures, the lobotomy becomes a very appealing means of attaining control and reducing work without bothering to actually treat your patients. This little episode on lobotomy is something that can be applied to the medical system as a whole. These types of discrimination and differences in outcome didn't disappear with the fall of lobotomy in the 70s. They still very much exist and are endemic to our system of healthcare. The people who are victims of these barbarous procedures are still very much alive and with us. Their lives and relationships have been irrevocably changed because of vain and narcissistic old man with funny round glasses stole a piece of their soul. In 1951, Walter Freeman killed a patient when he stopped for a photo op mid-surgery, pushing a pick into the patient's brain. In his career, he lobotomized 3,439 people including 19 minors, the youngest being 12-year-old Howard Dully. Walter Freeman died on May 31st, 1972, 
somewhat ironically, from surgical complications. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, or at least found it mildly interesting. If you did, then I'd love it if you subscribed and tuned in next week. Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History. Signing off.